amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and welcome to Live Dharma Sunday. If you have called in to listen to this morning's broadcast, please note that all lines have been placed on mute to avoid background interference. If you are joining us from either the Bright Dawn Ning site or the Blog Talk Radio site, please note that it is not necessary to call in. If you're experiencing loss of audio or the Blog Talk Radio player is not working properly, please refresh your page and hit the play button once more. It may take a few moments for your browser to complete the buffering process. Once again, welcome to Live Dharma Sunday and enjoy the broadcast. Welcome, everyone, to Live Dharma Sunday for December 10th, 2017. Koyo Kubose here. So very, very glad you joined us. Nice December morning. <laughs> nice and crisp and cool. When you go outside, you know you're alive. <laughs> well, a couple of days ago on December 8th, uh, as you may know, in the Mahayana tradition, uh, Bodhi Day, Enlightenment Day, the day that Siddhartha Gautama sand, sat under a tree that came to be called a Bodhi tree, B-O, or a Bodhi, meaning wisdom, wisdom tree. This is the tree in which he attained enlightenment under. The word Bodhi means wisdom. Uh, so Bodhi Day um, it's so nice that this tree this object uh, has become associated with this major religious holiday Um, uh, it's um, called a P-I-P-A-L. I'm not sure what kind of a botanical term that is. Also called a ficus tree. Um, so perhaps under the genus of a kind of a fig tree in India, in Nepal area. Um, it also has a, you know, it's become so famous in the sense of, I think it's uh, one of its formal names is uh, ficus religiosa. 
It's a religious tree, you know. And it has a very distinctive heart-shaped leaf, and the tip is very long. And um, my my parents had a tree, small bodhi tree. Uh, I guess it could be called a bonsai. It was probably about two feet high and had a really nice shape and was very healthy. Uh, they kept it in their home. And so when I was a minister at the Buddhist temple in Chicago, when we had our Bodhi Day service in the beginning of December, uh, I would bring that tree from my parents' next door rectory uh, home and bring it into the temple chapel and put it right up at the front altar uh, and put it, I think I used to put it on a little table right near the incense burner so when people came up they could get a close up you know, view of this uh, body plant after my parents had passed away uh, my brother-in-law Robert care of all the plants and he has I think he has several Bodhi bonsai plants doing really well and uh, he's very talented that way and a couple of years ago I got a Bodhi Bodhi plant uh, and I'm really happy that I that I got one as a gift because oh maybe a few decades ago a friend in Chicago, Phil, he was able to get some Bodhi seeds and he grew tiny Bodhi Bodhi plants. Maybe they were, you know, six inches tall and then he would give them away as sort of gifts. Uh, But he was unable to get those seeds anymore. I corresponded with him and, and I wanted to try to grow my own Bodhi plant, and I remembered that he had done this this Bodhi tree project as a hobby, and but he said no, I can't get those seeds anymore. And I tried looking on the internet, and uh, nothing turned out. And uh, you know we're about <clears throat> half an hour north of the Fresno, and the Fresno Temple in their parking lot they have a big Bodhi tree. It's the biggest Bodhi tree I ever saw. It rivals the one in Foster Gardens in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, I remember when I visited Foster Garden and uh, in their program, they list this Bodhi tree and say, and, and it says that this is presumably thought to have been a descendant of the original Bodhi tree that the Buddha sat under. Um, because it's known that uh, in Buddha's time, you know, he was famous in his own time, and so cuttings and whatnot from that original tree presumably were propagated and, you know, uh, went all over. So presumably the one in Foster Gardens, 
they said, okay, I don't know how verified it, it is or not, but it's a nice sentiment and a story. And so I would sit under that big old tree and take a picture of myself. I would pick up some leaves that I didn't pick any live leaves, but I picked up some freshly fallen leaves, nice and green, and I got a bunch of them and I brought them home. And I remember I, I framed them in a, in a, you know, small frame with a, I think I put a sky background paper in the background and uh, on the back I put a little uh, label that said what its origin was and presumably from the original tree, you know, and then I had a dozen or so of these framed things that I would give away as gifts. And, uh, but anyway, I, uh, the one, the, the, the body tree in, at the Fresno parking lot is, I must be, I would say, at least maybe eight feet in diameter, the trunk, and must tower at least over 50 feet high. It's huge. And um, this kind of tree is, I think, tropical indigenously. And uh, But I know that there are some temples in California where, you know, the winter gets not severe, but still um, it's not easy on tropical trees. But some there are some other temples that have smaller body trees. There must be different species because some of these trees at the other temples they're they're quite old, but they're small, you know, in terms of their mature size. But the one at Fresno uh, Temple, uh, you know, it's so big, and um, and I could see because I used to drive there every Wednesday to when Adrian had uh, uh, joined the Tai Chi class that was held there every Wednesday morning. So I would drop her off and then go to visit my brother and, and, uh, and follow her. And so I would go by that tree, you know, every week. And so I started to see how it's, uh, it had uh, its seeds, flowers and then seeds and so forth. So I got some seeds and, tried to propagate those, but they never made it, okay? Then I tried some cuttings. I, I tried to educate myself on how to make cuttings, and I make, tried cuttings on this tree, and nothing happened. Um, and there was a smaller tree right under this big tree. That must have been a so-called volunteer that grew from, you know, a drop seed. So I know that those seeds will grow, okay? I heard that uh, that it's very difficult to germinate uh, these Bodhi seeds. So, but I tried real hard and <laughs> to no avail. And then, like I said, a few years ago, um, I heard from a friend who's in the Bay Area, Berkeley area, and he got a, a couple of Bodhi plants that were given to him. He's the director of the Numata Translation Center. Buddhist Translation Center, they're translating the Tripitaka into English. It's a tremendous translation project involving uh, uh, over a dozen esteemed scholars all over the country having certain sections of this 
and I think they're translating from the Chinese um, into English. And uh, it's, it's a project, you know, the Tripitaka is uh, the Buddhist literature, all the collected uh, accounts of the Buddha's words and then commentaries on those words and then Vinyana, which is the all the precepts and regulations in order to run uh, for the mo- monastic life. Those were the three so-called baskets of literature, hundreds and thousands of sutras and so forth accumulated over the 25, over 2,500 years. And so it would take several decades to complete this translation project. I don't have an update on it, but uh, and all financed by uh, a philanthropist, Mr. Numata, who was a very successful uh, engineering, worldwide engineering company. And he was such a devout Buddhist that he it's written into their company bylaws that 10% of the profits go toward this organization that will help to spread Buddhism through this translation work. And I think he endows half a dozen uh, professor, professorial chairs at the uh, major universities, perpetual, to bring in uh, Buddhist scholars at Harvard and UC Berkeley and, you know, and the University of Chicago, and so that there's a uh, Buddhist scholars to offer offer their these for for a one year position and so forth. So he said that a friend uh, donated two Bodhi plants. Would I like one? I said, Oh, of course. And so since his mother. Uh, and he's from Fowler, which is just south of Fresno. So he, one of his trips back to visit home, he dropped that off. And then I picked it up from another friend of a friend who brought it to the Tycho group on Wednesday morning, which we go to every week, um, the Tai Chi group. And then, so I've, I've had it for a couple of years now, and it's doing fine. It's about... Mm, I transplanted it once into a little bigger pot. It must be about uh, two and a half, three feet tall, um, including the pot. And uh, it's doing okay, I'm glad to say. And it has a nice backstory because uh, it came from New York. There was a couple that lived in New York, members of the New York Buddhist Church, and and I knew that I knew that family. And uh, they, they were, um, when I visited New York, uh, and I, when I met this the husband, he would always say uh, that, you know, he, he was a strong uh, supporter of my father. He said, he, and uh, when my father would come to New York on a guest speaking or something, he said, I'm his man. I take care of him and transportation. He could stay at my place and so forth. And they had this couple of Bodhi trees, and when they passed away, then their daughter got them, and and then she wanted to find a home for them and gave them to Brian, who's the director of the Numata Translation Center in Berkeley, and then it came to me. So it has a nice story to it. And I don't know what kind of tree it is. I, I'm, I'm hoping that I, 
I couldn't treat it as a house plant uh, or even maybe try to make it into a bonsai, but I decided I'm going to try to make it into a full-size tree. Um, and it might be tough in this climate where, you know, in the, in the winter it gets a little bit cold, and I don't know. I'm going to have to baby it till it gets pretty big, I think, maybe six feet tall or something like that, and then I'm going to find a spot and try to transplant it. But uh, that's years down the road. And um, so right now I bring it in during the winter time and kind of baby it. Uh, but these are the um, uh, kind of uh, Bodhi Day memories or experiences around this holiday and um, uh, as I said it's so nice to have a tangible concrete uh, plant and of course that shape of that Bodhi leaf is part of our Bright Dawn Center logo uh, and there's a Bright Dawn right in the middle of that leaf yeah, the leaf is colored orange and yellow, and there's a there's a dawn, a bright dawn, sunrise in the middle of that leaf, and that's our logo. Um, I should write an article about the significance of our logo, how it came about, and how it can be used as a teaching in itself, and everything like that. Um, okay, well. I want to introduce our guest to give us a Dharma glimpse this morning, Patty Cayo. Uh, she and her husband, Doug, they went through the program together. Uh, they were part of the LM4 group. And at that time, they were in the Southern California. And the, then when after they retired, they moved up to the Washington State. And um, so let us hear from Patty Cayo. Hi. I was deep in thought the other day, thinking about my topic for this upcoming Dharma Glimpse report and how I thought I'd write about this American notion we have of a bucket list and how we see happiness as something that's out there to be checked off a list and how meaningless in itself perhaps that is because it won't matter at all how many things we've satisfied ourselves with when we're dust. So I was absorbed in this question of deep cosmic significance. We were backing out of our driveway, and something caught my eye. Wow, a giant bag of styrofoam packing peanuts on the ground next to our empty trash barrels. What's this? Who's trying to fob their trash on us? How rude. It was a big bag full, and I was a little peeved about putting it in my empty trash barrel, as it wouldn't leave enough room for our own trash during the week. We couldn't just put it in our car and take it to a dumpster because our past experience has taught us that all the dumpsters are kept chained shut in the remote area we live in. Adding to my annoyance was the fact that the recycling center won't even take packing peanuts at all. It's like getting rid of a dead body. How did somebody's problem become my problem? The more I thought about it, the more steamed I got about who did this and why. Why didn't they ask us? I could take it door to door and ask, is this yours? But then I'd be that person. So we decided to leave it there on the ground until we got back from our errands. And as we drove away, I became aware of my state of mind. It sure didn't take much to get me going, did it? I was primed. 
And as is too often typical for me, I go straight to conspiracy theories. I supplied an entire script casting villain with me as the victim around this innocent bag of packing peanuts. I realized again that I'm still walking around with a negative outlook and a hair trigger looking for trouble. My husband and I started joking about it. Maybe someone is missing their giant bag and we should post signs saying found peanuts with a picture. Also, we decided it's not even ours to throw away. Well, we spent way too much time on this. We decided it could sit there all week until the next trash pickup day or somebody came by and claimed it. And while this may be interpreted as a sign of our acceptance of the situation, part of our motivation was to imagine the shame of our perpetrator as they drove by our house and saw it still sitting there. I'm not proud of that. I puzzled over this occasionally that evening, wondering who didn't like us? Why were we being singled out for this hit and run? And the next day, ready to go into battle, with our heads full of this self-created fantasy, we pulled out of the driveway and the bag was just gone. You know, the teachings are all around us. Thank you. <laughs> That's such a concrete example of an everyday thing that, you know, uh, to process it, to become a, get the feedback of our own reaction of getting caught up in uh, uh, things that bother us, everyday things, that kind of awareness, I think really we need that, you know, to reflect upon ourselves. The Buddhist uh, MO or modus operandi, you know, what do Buddhists do? What is their method or, you know, their their practice, in a sense, broadly. Well, it's introspection. It's self-reflection. You know, without that, or even in a secular sense, I remember a famous psychologist, Sigmund Freud, said, an unexamined life is a life not worth living. Uh, self-reflection is not easy, <laughs> you know, there are degrees of it or depths of it. Um, and, of course, we all do it to some extent. We, you know, but religiously, spiritually, buddhistically, what is the nature of this kind of introspection and self-reflection? You know, what, is this, what is the process? What is the content and so forth? Because some of the reflection could be could be the opposite of of uh, honesty and so forth, but it could be building up an illusion we have about our our pride and so forth. Okay, so we know for one thing, the deeper introspection would be to try to root out the the illusions <laughs> that we have about ourselves. Try to look at ourselves very nakedly, honestly. Okay. Not the way we want things ourselves to be or the way things to be, okay? But how would a TV camera view the events? How much is, is fact and how much is, you know, our perception and interpretation about it? And what is the nature of our interpretation? 
because in one sense, none of us can really be a, a neutral objective TV camera completely. You know, we always have some kind of filter through which we see the world and what we put out into the world. Okay. The very least we can do, the most basic thing is just try to become aware of how that process, how, how are we doing that? Okay. And it doesn't take very long to find out how biased we are in favor of ourselves. Uh, you know, uh, in fact, in psychology, social psychology, there's something called attribution error. Attribution means, you know, what, what are the causes to which you attribute your behavior? Okay. So why do you do, why do you do behave in a certain way? Why does anybody behave in a certain way? Okay. Well, it depends on whether your behavior is something uh, seen as good or as bad. See, you want to think of yourself as always doing good behavior. You don't want to say that, oh, I, I behave badly, you know. But when it's other people that, you, that the judgment's about, it's the reverse. We don't attribute the, the good things that people do to themselves. Those be attributed to external environmental factors. Okay? Does the, is the attribution internal or external? Does it come from within as a personality trait of the person that he carries this around? It's trans-situational the way he is. Okay? Or how dominant are the situational environmental factors that produce the behavior? Okay? This is kind of oversimplification, but it's a good analytic tool. Okay? Inside, outside, good behavior or bad behavior? You know, what is judged to be good and bad behavior. If you make a kind of like a two-by-two two table with those two factors and those two opposites within each factor, okay, where is the source, internal, external? And what kind of behavior are you talking about? Okay. Uh, for example, supposing someone, uh, you're waiting for somebody, your friend, and they come, and you've been waiting, waiting, and then they finally they come late, and you say, "Oh, person, friend says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm late. You know, traffic held me up. I saw this scene depicted in a, in a movie that was a psychology movie that was illustrating attribution there, and uh, <clears throat> the person that was waiting said, oh, don't give me those excuses, those BS. You're always late." You always blame it on traffic or something else that happened, but it's you. You're, you're habitually late. You're not a very prompt person. You're not a punctual person, and you, you always have some excuse. So, no, 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 that traffic was really bad. I, I tried to give you, you know. Now, so in other words, when it's the other person, okay, and some so-called bad behavior, okay, you blame the person, the internal source, okay? When it's you, okay, then when it's 
something good, like let's say you got some kind of an award for, for you got on the dean's list for grades. Man, I studied hard. The reason I got these good grades is I really studied hard. Man, it was rough, but you praise yourself and and your internal, you know, personality qualities. Okay. Somebody else might say, uh, looking at you, they might say, uh, he had all the advantages. You know, he has a very supportive family atmosphere. He has a real nice, his own uh, bedroom where he could study easily. He lives close to the library, okay, and so forth, okay. And his friends really help him, okay. And the family has money that could afford a tutor or get some books and stuff, okay. If you if you say someone's successful and he's a Rockefeller or Kennedy, you know, so, oh, that's because he comes from that kind of a family. That's why he's a success. Okay? That's when you're judging somebody else. You attribute it the attribution of his behavior okay, depends on whether you're judging yourself or others and whether it's a good behavior, bad behavior. Okay? And you could see that it's that the error is always in your own favor. And you don't want to extend that favor to other people. You always think other people, they did bad, yes, their fault. But they did good, ah, their circumstances, environment enabled it. But when it's you, then good behavior, yeah, I did it. Okay. When it's bad behavior, oh, it was because of the circumstances. Um. I think that's a very Buddhistic, we don't have to call it Buddhistic, but of course, from our context, you know, to be able to realize this is part of what we might call spiritual maturity. Um, (laughs) That's all for today's broadcast. Till next time, keep going. You watch out for attribution error and you have a Wonderful day. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.